0: good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Hope you've been well. It's been a few weeks, and uh, we're entering into a special Christmas season, and uh, we're going to be heading to Colorado uh, one week from now. And uh, so we're excited to see my family. uh, It's probably been a year since we've been able to see them. and So that'll be a special time, and I hope this uh, season is special for you as well. Well, we're working through the the book of 1 John, And we're actually in our last section today. And so this is uh, John uh, both summarizing his thinking in his letter and in some ways really at the height of all his uh, passions and desires in his letter as well. And uh, because of both uh, this section's position in this letter and this letter's position in John's writings, it's kind of a, a farewell in some ways uh, to his, uh, his church and his, his ministry. And so we're going to look through this uh, for a few minutes and, and see what John has to say, uh, really when his thinking and emotions are especially concentrated. We're going to be reading from uh, 1 John uh, chapter 5, uh, verses uh, 12 through 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that you have towards him, that, we, uh, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. And if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit, uh, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Also, wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Who knows that uh, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, and he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so we may know that him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let me pray for our time together. Gracious Father, we thank you that you have brought us here to worship you and hear from you. Uh, we, would your uh, spirit uh, take the words of truth and connect them to our hearts and mind. Would He be our teacher now? Enlighten us, give us the faith to believe your words of grace. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're in this last passage in 1 John, and it represents uh, for our writer a kind of uh, farewell to his church. Uh, John has been ministering to a congregation in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And this letter is his direction, affection, and hopes for his church and it's not only the, the summary of his thinking, there's many repeated themes in this, but it's really the culmination of his love and desires he has for his church. And while we call First John a letter or an epistle, uh, that is appropriate to do, he did write this as a letter to a church, uh, it is in some ways really reads more like a sermon. Many of the sermons I heard when I was living in inner city St. Louis John is circling around repeated themes of love and life and light, and his last thoughts are not an architonic summary of his letter, but the final crescendo of his emotions and desires that he has for his church. He is employing an ancient Greco-Roman practice called amplification, and it's doing just what it sounds like. It is John most amplified in his thinking and feelings for his church. And despite his many emotions, there is a clear train of thought. And we're not going to have three points that we're going to uh, use to explore this passage. And instead, we're going to try and track uh, John's train of thinking through this letter. And the big idea here is John's final desires for his church after ministering to them for many years. John begins his farewell to his church by offering them reassurance that the Lord hears their prayers. This is how he puts it in verses 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. John is working to build his church's confidence in the Lord's reception to their prayers. Uh, there are many things that God could've, John could have shared with his congregation, but the final thoughts he wanted were him pressing into the topic of prayer. And he wasn't telling them that they should be praying more. Uh, he wasn't telling them that their prayers weren't spiritual enough. He said he wanted them to deepen their confidence and their reassurance in their prayers. And the part that he focuses on is a phrase he uses God hearing us. And if we were to do a mere reading of this passage, uh, which just means looking at this passage as a solution to a problem or an answer to a question, it would seem that very likely his church was in some way struggling with uh, believing that God is hearing them. There are many ways that they could have been struggling with this, but we probably have some clue into what that struggle actually looked like. They believe that there was some type of gap between the material world and the immaterial world where God is. And for us to go from our space, the material space, uh, to go into God's space was in some ways a gap too large to cross. And while we don't struggle with these first century teachings, probably many of us do think that God's transcendence makes him at times inaccessible. Our lives are too perhaps unimportant for God to be concerned with. Maybe we are not spiritual enough or up to snuff enough. Maybe our prayers are not grand enough. And what John reminds us here in this passage is that we actually have an audience with God himself. And he captures this idea by saying that God hears us. In this word, God hearing us, this phrase, God hearing us, Uh, means more than what we might sometimes mean when we say that, which is uh, audio waves coming into our ears, sound waves. Uh, He's talking about a kind of active listening, an empathy, an active engagement that God has with us when we pray. When we bring our words to God, God literally, in a way, actually leans in to hear us. But John tells us not only that God listens to us, but that he actually gives us what we want. And that sounds like quite a deal, God giving you what you want. There's a lot of things I want, so that sounds great. And I think what John is describing here is really tapping into something that we encounter regularly with our prayers, which is, is God going to give me the things that I ask for? Uh, Many of our prayers uh, consist of making requests of God And one of the questions when we do this, is God going to give me the things I request of him? Uh, John uh, explores this. And what's interesting about our lives is that many times God gives us things that we don't ask for. And yet many times we are determined in asking God something that he doesn't actually give us. And John wants to explore this a little bit in this passage. And what John gives us is a couple clues to this question. One is a glimpse into what prayer really is. John tells us that prayer is really a way that we bend our will towards God, not a way that God necessarily bends his will towards us. John tells us directly this by uh, the fact that our prayers need to be aligned with God's will. It's through prayer that we encounter our neediness and our dependence on God. It's through prayer that we find ourselves uh, at the end of our rope, and it's through prayer that we, in a very practical way, express what is fundamental to our faith. God is in charge. We are to subordinate our lives to him, that the weaknesses we have do not give God shame, and that we can actually confidently bring them to him. But there's another component to this as well, about uh, what does it mean that God will answer our prayers And the solution in this passage has to do with the topic or the content of our prayers. And that's what John moves on to, the very things that we're supposed to be praying for. And what's really cool about this passage is John is encouraging his readers to pray that there would be more of God's mercy and forgiveness in the lives and community of his church. The topic of people's prayers is a deeper experience of God's forgiveness in their lives. This is how John puts it in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that does lead to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Uh, John, in in the previous passage, was just talking about prayer and what we should be praying for, and here he is telling us the content of our prayer primarily that God would forgive the sins of people in their congregation. What John is describing here is not a community that is holier than thou or a type of person who prays for God's forgiveness towards others but really means uh, I'm thankful that I'm not that person. What John is describing here is a community and a culture that deals gracefully with the missteps of others. One of the greatest marks for a healthy community is how determined people are to talk well about others behind their backs. Do the wrongs of others make up the topic of our casual conversations? Do we detail to others a play-by-play of how someone screwed something up? Uh, When someone asks, uh, describes the wrongs of others, do we get curious? Does it tickle something inside of us? And do we begin to ask for all the juicy details? John is describing here a community that does something different. What he is uh, asking is for other people to be praying for others. When you learn about the wrongs of others, one of the first responses is to actually turn to God in prayer. Church members are mediators of God's mercy to others. They're a kind of priest, somebody who receives a confession and then goes to God to petition for that person. And what is interesting and maybe a bit surprising about this is how John puts an emphasis on the effectiveness of these prayers. Uh, These prayers to see God's mercy realized in the church community are readily answered by God. This is how John puts it. He says, if you ask, God will give them life. Uh, We just read a few sentences earlier that we can have confidence coming before God And here John tells us what that confidence actually is, is that God can be relied on to give mercy to a community. Uh, That when we need forgiveness, we need hope, we need help, we can rely on God to be an agent in bringing these things into our lives. If we want to see a community that is more and more shaped and formed by forgiveness, it starts with us asking for it. It starts with us in our prayer seeking God to extend and grow mercy in the hearts and lives of a community. It's worth noting here that this prayer is, is um, uh, this gift of life that John is describing being given to other people uh, is, comes from God himself and not necessarily from the power of our prayers. To believe that prayer itself is a kind of power source that we can use to twist God's arm uh, leads to a kind of spiritual, superstitious thinking. What John is insistent here is on us believing that God is the giver of life and prayer is instrumental into this life being brought into the lives and the community of others. I think if there is one uh, part of this section that was most confusing, it would be this one that we just read. Uh, John is telling us that there are some sins that do not lead to death, and that we should be praying for these sins. There are other sins that do lead to death, and we should not be praying for these sins. What's challenging about this is, uh, for one, uh, how can life be given to someone who's not experiencing some kind of deadness? It also conflicts with other parts of Scripture which tell us that the wages of sin is death. And even ultimately to have Jesus on the cross substituting himself for us Only it makes sense if our sins are worth dying for. So how can it be the case that some sins lead to death and others don't? Well, there's been a lot of attempts at trying to explain this over the years. Uh, One of them has been to reference uh, different parts of the Old Testament, uh, which distinguish between uh, sins of ignorance uh, and high-handed sins, which are sins of presumption. Uh, What happens in these Old Testament uh, passages is uh, sins of ignorance are forgiven through the sacrificial system, uh, and high-handed sins are seemingly uh, not forgiven at all. They're unforgivable. But the problem with this approach is, uh, while John is very aware of this, uh, it's that it doesn't make sense of what actually happens in many Old Testament scenarios. Uh, Many times there is a high-handed sin that is forgiven Uh, not through the sacrificial system, but through the work of a mediator, Uh, many times Moses. Moses is somebody who's able to bring forgiveness into Israel despite the fact that they are not taking advantage of the sacrificial system. Others have suggested that this death being described here is not a spiritual death, uh, but really a kind of physical death. But the problem with this is that the life being offered is a kind of spiritual life, Uh, it doesn't make sense how a spiritual life can help the problem of a physical death. More than that, it would be strange that we weren't supposed to to pray for people that were in the grips of some type of physical death. What I think this passage is describing what many others agree with is that uh, what John has in mind here is something that is talked about elsewhere and called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This phrase is found in an exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders uh, where we find that there is a sin that cannot be forgiven. Uh, John is likely talking about this same concept. And if we're to rack our brains and say, what is this sin that cannot be forgiven? Uh, It's hard to think, right? We might think of uh, things like slander or lying or stealing. Um, That's not what John has in mind and that's not what Jesus has in mind when he talks about this. The sin that can't be forgiven is a failure to identify Jesus as the son of God and as someone who gave him his life for us and that we in turn should give our lives to him. The unforgivable thing was something that's always been unforgivable which is to not believe in the identity and mission of Jesus. If we if we die saying that we don't need Jesus we get what we want. Fundamentally, the sin that leads to death is the ultimate sin of not believing in God. John does think that we should pray for people, but he's saying that there is only one sin which by definition cannot be forgiven. John moves on from this, though, and reminds us uh, that uh, all sins are wrong. Uh, not uh, Not just sins that don't lead to death, but all sin has a wrongness to us. And John uh, moves on immediately into another section. He doesn't linger here too long on human piety or its power. Uh, He returns to the things that the church should have uh, forefront in their mind. And he describes it by saying what the church knows. Uh, He's saying these are not things that the church uh, has to go and learn and discover, but he says that they know these things. And what the church already has knowledge of is primarily uh, about Christ. Christ his accomplishments, and the resources he offers the church. Uh, John is saying that they are similar to Christ. Christ has been born of God and that they too are born of God. Uh, That Christ has taken it upon himself to protect the church. The greatest uh, greatest threats to our lives and to our communities have a spiritual origin, and Christ is here to protect us from our greatest threats. Jesus also tells us that Christ has, John also tells us, that Christ has come so that we may know God. Jesus bridges the divide between the holy and the unholy and between creator and creation, allowing us to know God fully by knowing Christ. But what really sticks with me with this passage and the thing that was really on the forefront of my mind was uh, a theme and a topic uh, that John had talked about uh, fairly regularly in this letter. And what John talks about uh, elsewhere in this letter is uh, about uh, what Christ is actively talking about us. Uh, John's uh, John's uh, uh, insistent on trying to help us understand that Jesus is presently uh, actively talking about us. And what's amazing about the ministry of Jesus is it's not just the things he did for us in the past. It's not just the things he's going to do for us in the future. But Jesus has an active, present ministry to us right now. And it centers on the way he talks about us. John tells us that Jesus is actively talking about us to his Father. And what's incredible about uh, this conversation Jesus is having with his Father is he's not following us, us around with a microscope, and he's not telling the Father every misstep or wrong that we've committed that day or that week. He's actually speaking well of us to the Father. And when Christ is speaking about us, it's not just simply the things we got right, but it's actually the things that Christ got right on our behalf. John tells us that Jesus is pleading the merits of the cross to his Father on our behalf. And as we go through the day and the week and we rack up uh, mistakes and wrongs, Jesus is telling the, the Father that his sacrifice is sufficient for us. There isn't anything else needed for the Father to be pleased with us other than the sacrifice of Jesus. Put another way, God is graciously promoting our reputations. We have a reputation with the Trinity, and the one that we have with the Trinity is that of being innocent and perfect and pure. And this has nothing to do with the ways that we actually live our lives. This has primarily to do with the living ministry of Jesus, and the way he talks about us to the Father. And when John spends his final words telling us church to handle the wrongs of others with care and delicacy and grace, he has in mind what Jesus is actively doing for us right now. Jesus prays for the Father for mercy. We too pray to the Father for mercy. John's ultimate hope for his church is that it is in the hands of Christ, and that it would look like Christ, and all of this happening through the ministry of Christ. Would that be our hope this morning? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your good news, uh, which you uh, remind us of every week. Uh, We long to know this grace, and we pray that uh, it would go to each of us, that you would remind us of our salvation, especially in this Advent season, uh, that it is not earned, but it is simply received. We pray that you would fill us with wonder and anticipation and hope in this good news. In Christ's name, amen.